0: And I would always question it, like why is that, that shouldn't be the standard, like there are ways to cover yourself. It doesn't have to be specifically like in the bio with, you know, Arabic script on it or whatever, you know what I mean? Hey guys, and
1: welcome to another episode of the Unfazed with Tazi Faye podcast, where we have casual, down-to-earth conversations about all sorts of topics. On today's episode, I will be talking to Izdehar Bailey, who is a historian and ethnographer on Eastern Europe, Russia, and post-Soviet states. She's an American convert of Balkan heritage who goes under the name Lady Izdihar, where she educates people on her Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube, the often overlooked and misrepresented region, and people of the former Soviet bloc. We had a really interesting conversation about modesty and her experience in finding her personal style. I hope you all enjoy the episode. Here it is. Thank you so much for
2: joining me today. I really appreciate the time you're taking out to do this. Um can you tell a little bit, t- can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself?
0: Yes, um, my name is Izdahar and I go by Lady Izdahar on Instagram and on YouTube. And I'm an American convert to Islam of Balkan heritage and I'm a historian. And I talk about the history of Eastern Europe uh, and post-Soviet states. And I do this uh, with ethnography, talking about the different people groups there through maps and flags and what they can tell us. Um, it's a very misunderstood and misrepresented region of the world, especially in the English language. so I try to combat that. Um, and also, I'm a huge fan of, well, vintage and historically inspired fashion. So speaking of
2: of fashion, um and I also, by the way, love, love your headscarf today. It's really beautiful. Um, (laughs) you have great style. Um, I love it. I feel like it's very unique. It's different than kind of the images that I'm used to seeing. It's kind of like this Mm -hmm. cookie cutter pastels and, you know, it's, it's pretty, you know, standard, um, in the modest fashion, fashion industry, things start to look the same. So can you tell me a little bit about where your inspiration comes from and a little bit maybe about your personal style?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, as a historian, I take a lot of inspiration from history. So specifically these days, I really um, am inspired by the fashion of folk dress in Eastern Europe. Um, And, you know, in a way, I'm reconnecting with my own family's history by researching that and figuring out what people wore um, in this part of the world. And I really like to express to people that, you know, head coverings and modest fashion existed in almost every single culture across the globe. And so I really wanted to reach into my own cultural background from the Balkans and pull from that. I also pull from a lot of very like Western Um, vintage styles like I wear a lot of 50s and 40s inspired pieces this I'm wearing is a like prairie dress which is a very more western styled thing and most of the scarves I wear these days are called plotok which is a Russian word which just means scarf Um, but it's a very specific style of cultural scarf from eastern Europe and Russia Um, usually worn for practical reasons not religious ones And yeah, I also pull a lot from um, military. (laughs) That's like controversial to say, but I really do love the history of conflict and all that encompasses it. And so when I shop, I'm drawn to things that remind me of, you know, oh, that reminds me of this uniform from this particular war. Um, And I've always shopped from the perspective of self-interest. I'm interested in this thing. This thing reminds me of that. I'm going to get it.
2: (laughs) Okay. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And. I love that that's the inspiration behind your personal style. Um, where where do you get a lot of these pieces or where do you find a lot of the things that you wear?
0: So mostly thrift stores and vintage shops. Um, I've never been in a like financial situation where I could just get whatever I wanted. So my whole life, I've mostly shopped from thrift stores. Uh, I think it's amazing, even like even in times of my life where I've had, a little bit more money to buy what I wanted, I would prefer to search through thrift storage, thrift stores or vintage stores. Also, Etsy is really good if you know what you want to look for. A lot of people who dress in historically inspired fashion or into specific eras will often shop on Etsy, but that is a bit more pricey because it is so curated. Um, but you can find some really nice, like preserved, like real historic pieces on there. Okay.
2: Yeah, no, I'm a big fan of Etsy. Um... And so I, I actually recently read an interview that you did with Modest-ish, and you talked mm-hmm. about how you felt that the concept of modesty among Muslims is very Arab-centric. Um, so I was wondering, could you talk a little bit about what, what you meant by that?
0: Yeah, and I hope that like answer didn't come off as offensive. I do worry, like I recognize, you know, I am a white convert to Islam, so I recognize that there's privilege in that. And part of that privilege is being able to you know, dress how I want to without worrying about what my family thinks or what people from my own cultural background will think or in some cases what my tribe would think. People, I don't have that to worry about. So I don't mean to be offensive by saying something like that. Um I think a lot of this goes back to my experiences as a convert, where it's it's a totally different <laughs> experience than most Muslims, I would assume. Um where you know, you find Islam, you realize I believe in, you know, I believe in dressing modestly, I believe in, you know, being judged by what I have to say and what I have to give versus my body. And I want to express that. And I want to express my faith visually. And making that switch from not having to worry about that to suddenly, I need to find clothes that cover my body. That's a whole (laughs) journey. And I think a lot of converts kind of get caught up in um, whatever their first introduced to. And often that will be some sort of Arab dress or, you know, whoever's at your local mosque is probably who you're going to be exposed to initially. Um, Yeah. So for me as an outsider, and it's weird because converts are in between two different worlds completely. You don't quite fit in either one. And so you end up being an observer. And I saw other converts, friends that I knew um, before I started dressing modestly, because it took a while to build a wardrobe. I saw them get caught up in like concepts and dress that was totally, like totally completely of another culture that they don't even belong to and i would always question it like why is that that shouldn't be the standard like there are ways to cover yourself that doesn't have to be specifically like a, in a bio with you know arabic script on it or whatever you know what i mean um and I had this experience, which is actually really, it it makes me angry. And I talk about it all the time. And basically when I first decided I wanted to wear hijab and cover my body, it was like a year and a half after I converted. And it was like my second Ramadan. And so I said, I'm going to do it. I'm (laughs) going to cover myself. And I didn't have an extensive wardrobe. So I was wearing like leggings, a tunic, and like a circle scarf that I was trying to make work no fashion sense, no idea, just modest. That's all I I knew. And I was actually supposed to go start playing a new game with a Dungeons and Dragons group. And they, most of them had never met me before. And when I showed up dressed in a way they didn't expect, they were very offended by me. They told me that I was um, appropriating Arabic culture and did not want me to play with them anymore. And, you know. Obviously, I don't think that's the case. I was just wearing what I had. Um, But that experience really stuck with me, that people view what a Muslim looks like as Arab so specifically, to the point where I would be misunderstood as like pretending to be a race that I'm not. And that really led me to explore my own background. Like, well, if I want to dress modestly, why can't I do it in a way that's more true to who I am. I don't want that confusion. I don't want people to think that I'm trying to be something that I'm not. Yeah. Does that kind of answer the question? It's kind of. No, it does. I really got sucked into your answer. Cause I, I, I had,
2: I mean, although I'm not a, you know, I, I don't know what the convert experience is like. I, I didn't have that experience. So, but yeah. I in some ways feel like I can relate because I I'm Pakistani and I, I went to a very predominantly Arab school and uh, I was actually going to make a video about this. I'm just trying to find a way to make it so that it's not offensive or like making it look like I hate people from a certain culture. Yeah. But um, I, I felt um, I had a lot of self hatred. I rejected a lot of me being Pakistani and, um, or even Pakistani clothes or whatever it is, just because I felt that they were superior because I was constantly um, in that environment. And to me, it was like, Islam is like, this is, this is better than whatever I had. Um, And so I felt when you were talking, I felt like in a way I, I kind of related a little bit um, on that point. And I I never thought about it that way. Also that you could be, someone could say something like you're appropriating culture. I wouldn't even think about that.
1: Um,
2: I don't know. It's a, it's, it's also, I think a strange time that we live in as well, where um, with cultural appropriation, you know, sorting through what is really, what is really hurt like harmful and what is like that gray area that it's not really cultural appropriation. Mm -hmm. You don't, you can't, Just determine what people's intentions are, but I'm going on a tangent.
0: Yeah, no, and I mean like that was a a hard situation for me because no matter what I said, they already decided that I'm an offensive person. You know, it doesn't matter if I say, no, Islam exists all around the world, Islam exists in Bosnia. Are you going to tell a Bosnian that they're appropriating Arabic culture? Are you going to tell someone from, from Russia, of which there are many Islamic groups in, that they're appropriating Arabic culture for dressing the way they've dressed for centuries? Um, you know, it, it, it's hard to explain that to someone who doesn't understand the religion in the first place, the geographical expansion of the religion or what the religion actually looks like. And, you know, I don't you know, we don't have the time to explain to people that, you know, it's the most diverse, fastest growing religion in the world. Um, and I do want to say on your point about, you know, your experiences, I think there's a point in every Muslim's life, whether they're born Muslim or converted to Islam, that they decide to be Muslim for themselves not because of their family, not because of what's expected to them. And so I think that looks different way. Sometimes that is deciding to wear hijab or not wear hijab or do things a certain way. Um, and there's, you know, there's a bit of how often when people talk about putting on hijab, they say it's empowering, but I think the empowerment comes from your connection to it. And I felt more connected to my hijab when I started wearing these kinds of scarves versus, Oh, everyone else is wearing like this Jersey scarf and, you know, do it this way. And like, okay, that's what's expected of me. But this feels right. This feels like I have a connection to it. I likely have ancestors in Romania who wore scarves like this. And that makes me really happy to think about, you know?
2: Yeah. And I I actually, I totally, I didn't think about it until you said that, but I agree. And I feel like I've kind of come into that as well. Um, because from the region of the world that I'm originally from, it's very normal to have kind of like a light, uh, scarf on your head. So it's kind of like loosely on and like a dupatta. And so I, I realize like, I'm very comfortable in that style, although I get criticized for it because my hair is showing, but, um, I, I realize I, I feel that as well. And, uh, one thing I also really like about your page, your Instagram page is the fact that you highlight that there's there's a whole nother world of, of Muslims out there. I mean, we're kind of tunnel vision and and I I love uh, that you do that. And I think, I think slowly people are starting maybe, you know, with
0: as as far as like Eastern, sorry to interrupt you. No, no, you're fine. As as far as like Eastern Europe and Russia, I think Habib helped a lot. So like, he's one person where it's like, okay, people know the Caucasus exist of of which there are again, many, like the uh, Dagestan where he's from is one of the most diverse places in the world. Uh, sorry, I just, I love talking about this. No, no, but okay,
2: go talk about it, yeah.
0: Yeah, but it's like, it's in the Caucasus Mountains, which is, um, you know, it's a very rugged mountain, and so you have completely different people groups. In Dagestan, he's Avar, he's I believe, and there's many other different people groups, literally on the other side of the mountain, complete difference in culture, um, and it's really fascinating, and there's other Republics in that region, like Chechnya and Ingushetia um, and Ossetia, there's all these Muslim communities completely different from each other that most people know nothing about, you know. And then you have like the Volga region in Russia, where you have the Bashkir people in Bashkortostan, and you have the original place or the main place of the Tartar people. And the Tartar people are also in. Um, Poland and Lithuania, you have the Lipka Tartars, you have Tartars in Romania called the Dabruja Tartars, you have the Crimean Tartars in Crimea, which is disputed whether it's Ukraine or Russia, Um, and then you have Central Asia. And, you know, I never hear people talking about this in the English language. And I think part of that is because the diaspora isn't in the English-speaking part of the world. And so I think that makes people forget that they even exist. And again, all these people dress differently. They have their own version of modesty that's existed for centuries. Mm -hmm. Um, What I get frustrated by is I'm a part of like Facebook groups that are like the history of Muslims or like sharing pictures from like archives. And every time someone shares a picture from Russia, all the comments are like, oh, they must've converted recently. I'm like, they've been Muslim for hundreds and hundreds of years, but people don't talk about it. So they don't know. Right.
2: So, as you know, off the point of the, you know, that there's not a, the diaspora doesn't really exist here. Is there a place, um, where would the diaspora be?
0: Um, Well, I think a lot of people never left, um, you know, financial reasons. And then a lot of people who did leave, I know there's a lot of people from the Caucasus, which by the way, the term Caucasian refers to people of the Caucasus, not white Mm -hmm. people. And I like pointing that out. So Caucasians from the Caucasus, a lot of them end up in um, Turkey, mostly um, due to wars and conflicts in the past 30 years. A lot of them have also gone to like Germany and Sweden, but most people stay in in that region. Another reason why um, Muslims in Um, Eastern Europe and Russia are often not talked about is because people assume um, that because it was communist, that it must have been a godless place. And that's, you know, partly due to Cold War propaganda. Um, There's some truth to that. But, you know, I've been in really awkward situations at mosques where, like, the person giving the khutbah talks about, like, something they don't really know about. Like, once I went to, uh, once there was a khutbah about, like, um, Uzbekistan they were talking about I went to Uzbekistan and I've heard all of these experiences and it was just an entire <laughs> talk about how godless um like the Soviet Union was um despite religion existing next to that at the same time just it looked different um and I think there's a lot of misunderstanding with that history and how it's told in the English language and that makes us view this reason this region as possibly not having any sort of faith mm-hmm. or um diversity even like again 160 um different ethnic groups in russia that are indigenous to that region or at least um what is it people who migrated in that that's not the right word um sorry i can't think of the word right now but Mm -hmm. there's like 160 different um indigenous people to that region that are not just like slavic people which is how we often see them portrayed in movie and talked about um, when we talk about russia so a lot of that is just how we tell what goes on in that part of the world in the English language. And that carries on to the Muslim community in the West and the English speaking Muslim community, mm-hmm. also knowing less about that region due to, you know, propaganda, lack of representation and assumptions.
2: Yeah, no, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Actually, the first, I think the first exposure that I had was when I was in Islamic school and I was a kid. So after 9-11, they hired a, uh I don't want to say bodyguard. That's not right. Security, a security guard outside the school because the masjids and, you know, at that time, everything was getting a lot of threats. And so um, he was the security guard for the masjid and for the Islamic school. And he was from Chechnya. So that was the first time that I kind of had any exposure to that. And my dad is also like a like really into history so I know a little bit Mm -hmm. from him but yeah I would say most people don't really know at least here most Muslims that I don't know don't know anything about about that at all it's
0: kind of it's kind of a stereotype that like the bodyguard was was chechen because (laughs) um well i don't know it's like that part of the world like the history of the Caucasus is really fascinating because it's always been a very strategic point and you know it's like you know a a small not small but it's like a strip of land between two different waters and mountains and so it was really important for the for the,
2: for the listener or the people who are going to be listening um what what comprises the balkans Oh, the, the, Balkans,
0: Balkans? the Balkans is something different. I'm talking about the Caucasus, but the Balkans okay. is like southeastern Europe. And that's that's like where my family originally comes from. And they're not Muslim, okay. um, but there are Muslims in that region. But I what I talk about is the Balkans, Russia, um, and post-Soviet states, which encompasses okay. the Caucasus. But before I Caucasus before I interrupted also- you,
2: you were talking about Caucasus.
0: Yes, because Chechnya okay. okay. is in the Caucasus. Okay. And It is a republic. It is now a republic, there was a war, (laughs) disputing that um, after the Soviet Union um, ended. Um, But because of its strategic point, the Caucasus and the Caucasus Mountains, it's a strategic point. And so historically, the people who live in these mountains have had to be warriors, and they're often depicted as historically highland warriors. It's also really interesting. There's a lot of studies on like their genetic pool because it's so unique and different from the rest of the world. That's so weird to talk about. And it's like such a sensitive topic. And I don't want to be like, oh, these people are genetically this way. But um, the isolation of those mountains and the kind of lives they had to live for centuries, being in that strategic point has made them very stereotypically and in a lot of ways, literally like warrior people. And so it's kind of funny because like all over Russia, like... Yeah, it's like a stereotype that they would be like a bodyguard kind of person. Okay. <laughs> so it doesn't surprise me that, like, oh, the person you're introduced to that was Chechen was a bodyguard. It's kind of funny. My husband's Chechen, too, by the way. So okay. Okay. I've introduced, so I have a lot of background like culturally from the inside as well, but the okay. region specifically, I, I met him because I was the only American who knew where he was from, so. Okay, cool.
2: So bringing it back to fashion, I guess, what, you know, what do you feel like is the link between fashion or modest fashion and spirituality, and do you feel like the current state of the Muslim modest fashion scene or whatever is, is true to that as is?
0: Yeah, well, I think, you know, if you're choosing to cover because for God, right, it's not for other people. And so, in that sense, why does it matter if your wearing is fashionable or not? You know, and I think that was a big thing for me where it's like, if I'm going to be dressing modestly for God anyways, why not do it in a way that makes me happy, whether or not it's socially acceptable or common to other people? I think some would say not to, like, you don't want to bring too much attention to yourself. So, why would you dress? so out there Um, but if the whole point is this is a way for me to connect to God to be in a position where I can pray with what I'm wearing and you know to only be concerned with that relationship then you know what other people think of me should not have a should not be a factor at all and therefore I'm just going to dress how I want and so I find it ironic that there is a like cohesive sense of what's modesty needs to look like on a fashionable level when that kind of goes against the purpose of a personal relationship to that modesty and what that modesty is representing.
2: Right. I would agree with that. I actually recently I've been, I don't want to say struggling, but I've been kind of irritated by, it's not like I get a million comments like this. and I mean, I'm not a fashion blogger, but I've had comments um, occasionally about how like I need to like criticizing the way that I wear things from a fashionable perspective and saying like, Oh, you would get more viewer. One, one lady she was going on about how I would she's trying to help me because if I would dress nicer, I'd get, I'd get, I'd become more famous or something. And then okay. recently someone said that on my video, like your hijab style is outdated. Uh, Cause I did a little like side thing that I've been doing even before it was popular. Um, and I'm just like, yeah, you know, I'm not gonna change it just because it's fashion. Like, I'm gonna do what I, if I wanna experiment with something because I'm seeing a trend, I'll experiment. But yeah, I've been um, kind of annoyed with that lately. <laughs>
0: just I mean, off, some yeah. people wear outdated fashion as a choice, yeah. like as a fashion choice. I don't, I think that's, it's frustrating. Like, and it's not like, and you don't talk about, like, you talk about serious things, you talk about interesting things. So, how annoying is it that someone cares about what you look like? at all. That like the whole point, if you're dressing modestly, what you look like shouldn't even matter, you know, at the core of it. That's not the, that's not the point at all. You know, I dress the way I dress because it makes me happy. And lately I've been even more into different kinds of ways of covering just because I've reinvented the way I do it to be more representative of my interests, who I am and my own background. So I think, you know, and when I talk to other converts who are struggling, I know you're not a convert, but like in, in general, when people struggle with finding a sense of style, although I'm not someone who considers myself like a fashionable person, I just wear what I want. I recommend that they go back to their roots. Like what did people from where you are from, from where your background is, what did they wear a hundred years ago? And you might be surprised how connected you feel because the further you go back in history where things are less influenced by what was popular and more influenced by practicality, I personally find a lot more connection to that because it makes sense. Fashion through history makes a lot more sense than it does today because it had a lot more practical reasons behind it. Um, Assuming you're not studying the fashion of rich people, people tend to care more about like, with fashion history, people really like what rich people wore, which is not practical or common. I like what the peasants wore because it's super practical and more interesting in my opinion.
2: Right. And even, I mean, even if we don't go that far back in history, even if we talk about, I mean, I think the obsession maybe with like, fashion uh, from people who are wealthier is that they consider those things, those pieces to be things that are still fashionable, if that makes sense. Like it's like a timeless, well, maybe I'm making, I'm not making any sense. Just scratch that. (laughs) Well, I was just, I've been thinking recently because I was watching some fashion show. And I'm like, what's the point of spending all this? Like, I I try to rationalize, I'm like, why would anyone spend a lot of money on like a designer clothing? And my thought process is, okay, well, designer clothing is this thing that a lot more time and effort has been put into rather than something that's being copied off that in in Forever 21 or whatever, whatever it may be nowadays. Um, And so people will still, like you can still see some of those pieces like you can still wear them for a long time. I mean, that's that's what I thought maybe how people rationalize it, but I I don't know. I don't know how, be, like a purse. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I'm not in that scene, but I, I don't know. Neither
0: am I. <laughs> but yeah. I think there's a line, like there's a line where something, where the money is worth the quality and where the money is beyond that. It's more of like a status thing. And in that case, I think it's like hypocritical. Like, is it modest if what you're wearing is like costs more than what, you know, your friend can even you know you know what i mean like what's the point is it modest if it costs so much money um or you're showing off your wealth by having this sort of item um i've never been in a position where i could buy designer clothing and i'm grateful to be raised in that sort of sense because it, i think it makes me a lot more practical um there are times like if you want to buy something that's um uh, built to last then you would be buying utility clothing because utility clothing is priced towards what's most uh, port strength for its durability um and some people do dress in utility clothing as a fashion choice but that would be the like cost per durability sort of thing not a designer purse but like a utility um shirt or belt or something that's what I think of
2: yeah no that makes a lot of sense but you know be honest
0: like that's not why yeah like honestly that's not why like we know why people buy expensive things and yeah. it's to project some sort of image or you know Sometimes when I see people that are very, very flashy, I have to wonder, like, is their personality so, like, (laughs) boring that they have to compensate for that with, like, flashiness and expensive clothing and money? That's Mm -hmm. very rude of me. That's not very Islamic of me to say. But I can't help in like what what are they projecting by having to show off in that sort of way that they can't... um, Carry out with their voice. And again, with the concept of modesty, you're supposed to be, you know, it's to be judged by what you have to say, by your character, by the kind of person you are. Um, And does that ever get across when you're either dressing like everyone else in a Mm -hmm. way that's expected and forced on you, or is it, or either with very, very expensive clothing that no one else can obtain? I don't think either of those options are truly helping you progress in your own uh, faith. I mean, it could be. There's probably maybe but I don't think so are,
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah yeah
2: I don't I mean I, we don't like I, you know like you said before like I don't want to be arrogant about it that oh you know if you have so-and-so designer thing or you're obsessed with getting designer things you're, you're a shitty person but I I think we know. are allowed to say something because we are talking about like I, I'm interviewing you about you know, modest fashion and the modest fashion industry and your thoughts on those things. And I mean, I have been in that many times where I'm looking at something like a modest fashion blogger that's posting like her Christian Dior purse mm-hmm. and whatever. Um, and I'm like, well, you're leading a lot of people and you're influencing a lot of people and making them feel like they need this thing when in actuality, like what is the value of that thing in terms of modesty or you're, like it doesn't it's it doesn't make sense so I don't think that it's it's like a I think it's a criticism that makes excuse me, that makes sense but yeah or do you have anything any any last thoughts on anything um, related to modest fashion or the modest fashion industry
0: I, I do remember what I was just going to say and I wanted to sure. point out that like um, something that I struggled with when I converted was that all the modest fashion brands like targeted towards Muslims mm-hmm. were substantially more expensive than like regular clothing you could find right and I always found that interesting that like modest specific like Muslim specific modest clothing brands were so expensive and then the ones that weren't expensive like Modenisa, uh for me I'm very tall and none of their clothing ever like goes past my like It never touches my ankles, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was also a struggle and a frustration. Why why are these modest fashion brands substantially more expensive? It could be a quality thing. It could be, you know, an honest sourcing kind of thing. But that's definitely like a barrier for new Muslims is how expensive the specific Muslim fashion is. Um, And on top of that, I guess, you know, I really, like I said before, I really encourage especially new Muslims to look into their own cultural background for inspiration or to look through history for inspiration I mean if we wanted to we could wear bonnets that's modest and that you know like people yeah. wore that at some point um, for a variety of reasons it doesn't have to be a scarf it doesn't have to be you know a standard jersey hijab it could be many things and there's no one to say whether or not that is or is not right because it's right for someone and it's right Um, at some point in history and in some cultural background. So I think we really need to broaden our worldview when we're talking about modest fashion, uh, not just in religion, but in geographic instances and historical instances. There's so so much to pull from and it's kind of frustrating that it's always pulled from the same place when we look at uh, typical Muslim modern fashion, uh, modest fashion. Um, And that tends to be from the Arab world or the Gulf, I notice. Um, I personally don't follow a lot of these accounts anymore because I find it very helpful for what I'm looking for. Um, but yeah, look around the world and look through history and there's going to be something that you might resonate with that you haven't thought about wearing before.
2: Yeah, no, that's great. I honestly, you've inspired me. You've inspired me with what you said. So um, I think that's really great advice um, to tell people. And I think a lot of times we get hung up in just... Like it has to be this way and this is it. And and there's so much more to it. And the world is so much more vast than that. So thank you. I appreciate the time that you took to talk to me today. And I think it, we have a great podcast just come out of this. And um, I'll let you know when the video is up. Okay, thank you. <laughs> it
0: was nice talking to you.
2: It was nice talking to you too. Have a great
1: rest of your day. It's on my phone. I'm sorry, you too. And that concludes today's episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. I appreciate the support so much, as always. And I want to give a special thank you to the editor of the podcast, Fizan. You can find him on SoundCloud and Instagram, at Fizan Beats. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give me a rating and a review. It will help a ton. And if you want to help keep this podcast going, you can support by giving a small monthly donation to help us sustain future episodes on the Anchor FM podcast page. And that's all I have for you guys. So this is Tessie Faye signing out. Bye.